Achievements, Battle Scars by Onyx and Elm. Chapter 13. October 7th, 1998. Diary. It doesn't mean anything. Draco. October 9th, 1998. The bruises are fading at long last. She catches a sight of herself in the mirror next to Madame Pomfret's office on her way out of the hospital wing and back to her dormitory. It finds them nearly gone. The marks of his fingertips are yellowing and the love bites have vanished entirely. Now the only bruises left to heal are the ones on her lips from the night by the lake. She hastens away and tries to push back the whirlwind of memories as she ascends the first flight of stairs, only to fail, and miserably at that. It's so hard not to think about it. Every time she speaks or moves her lips, a soreness bites back and she remembers the pressure that started out so unpleasant and became so exquisite. She remembers the numb ache in her feet, hypothermic, stiff. There remained a bluish-purple long after she left the lake. It took her hours in the dead of night to work feeling back into them in the dormitory bathroom, using a conjured tub. Malfoy never shivered, she realises. Not once. By the third staircase, she's thinking about the way he breathed. A long, steadying breath, warm against her mouth. The one he let out just before stepping back, stepping away. Without another word, he'd turned and gone, leaving her with nothing but a lingering glance and more bruises to attend to. She's not spoken to him since, and each time she sneaks a glance, she finds his eyes averted. Stupidly, she wonders if it'll always be this way. Stupidly, because there is no always. There is no it. She has chalked up these things to flukes. Murphy's Law in practice. Random scientific phenomena. The collision of two chaotic bodies amidst more surrounding chaos. Nothing else would make her crave Malfoy's touch, and vice versa. Malfoy is a coping mechanism. Still, by the fifth staircase, these thoughts are gone and she's once more elbow-deep in memories. October 17th, 1998. Quidditch. Is there any point at all? To be fair, she's never enjoyed the sport, but now, more so than ever, it feels utterly meaningless, like putting a band-aid on a knife wound. In theory, it could help on a much smaller injury, but Quidditch is a band-aid on the already dead body of Hogwarts. If even Harry can't bring himself to play, she wonders why they still have matches at all. That being said, she somehow finds herself in the stands this afternoon. Ginny has pressured her into coming along, guilting her under the guise of You just don't seem to have recovered, you know, from... from the incident with Malfoy. If only Ginny knew how many more incidents there were. Still, she wanted off the subject, so she relented. And now she's in the cold, windy Gryffindor stands on the side of the pitch, watching a rather unexciting match between mostly fourth and fifth years. The majority of students older than that have opted out, following Harry's lead. It seems they can drink, laugh and be merry, but Quidditch is crossing the line. So far, all Hermione has learned this year is that coping mechanisms make every little sense. She sits, disinterested among a large group of seventh years, sandwiched between Ginny and Seamus, who she has not forgiven. But she couldn't very well go hexing him into oblivion without explaining why. 
and there were absolutely no chances of that. So she's burying her fury in silence and sour side glances. Sighing, she watches as the game pauses yet again due to a foul. These fourth years really are rubbish at Quidditch. Doubly so, considering even she can tell, and she doesn't know the rules. She realises that the only thing that can really make Quidditch bearable is cheering Harry on. Well, that and watching Malfoy get knocked off his broom every now and again by the Weasley twins. Her heart swells in two directions. Painfully, confusingly, aches at the thought of Fred, and yet inexplicably warms and excites at the thought of Malfoy. And she's so disappointed in herself that she tries to chase the ache instead. She drops her chin onto her fist, almost going cross-eyed as she refocuses on the slow-moving match. The blurry blue and reds of the Quidditch uniforms zip past her line of sight, and slowly her gaze moves to the shadowy shapes of Hogsmeade's roofs in the distance. She's busy counting chimneys when first she sees it. It makes her blink, clear her eyes, and for a moment she thinks she's seen a fleck of dust or the blur of something caught in her eyelash. But then, seconds later, she sees it again. In the distance, just before Hogsmeade, somewhere along the barrier of the grounds, she sees a ripple in the air, like a mirage. It waves the way a body of water does when a pebble is tossed into its depths, a small, controlled section of the atmosphere. She sits up straight, stares. Her breath stops in her throat. It's the wards. Not a moment later, she hears herself making an excuse about a headache. Not again, Miney, Ginny calls after her, but she's already cutting across the stands towards the staircase. As she makes her way down and out of the pitch, tripping over her own feet, she tries to remember everything she's ever learned about wards, thinks back to Flitwick's lessons in the Forest of Dean. Protective enchantments are not her best skill, but she knows enough. An uncorrupted ward should never ripple like that. She makes a beeline for McGonagall's office. In the months following the war, she'd read in the Prophet that McGonagall herself had recast the wards during Hogwarts reconstruction. And if they were McGonagall's, they wouldn't be easy wards to tamper with. A flicker of a very specific type of fear comes to life inside her. One she hasn't felt since Harry cast his final spell that day. It's the fear that kept her going while they were on the run. The fear that kept her alive, kept her wary of the possibility of danger at every turn. For a long while, it became something she'd expected to feel every day, just like hunger or exhaustion or any other natural sensation. It could not be a good sign that it's back. Throughout the castle, decorations for Halloween are being placed along the walls by house elves and professors, but she hardly notices as she skirts past them. She doesn't stop to wonder whether this adrenaline she's feeling is healthy or even necessary. Perhaps it's the pathetic joy that comes with feeling useful, like she's doing something that makes a difference. After the war, nothing in daily life has quite measured up, but subconsciously she considers she might now have a permanent attraction to danger. That would explain Malfoy. She shakes him away and picks up her pace, heart racing, but her brief excitement is cut short when she finds the wards in front of McGonagall's office glowing gold she's meeting with someone. Hermione practically skids to a halt before the statue of the griffin, 
suddenly having no outlet for energy that's coursing through her veins. She paces in the foyer in front of the statue for good ten minutes, flexing her hands in and out of fists, feeling restless, anxious. A weakened ward could break any moment. Anything trying to get in from the other side could have already done so. It sparks that flicker a familiar feel, and a moment later she's racing back the way she's come, feet slapping against the flagstone, feeling for her wand in her pocket. She's past the childhood need for an adult to set things right. She's been through a war. She can handle things herself. Hermione's paced the 30 yards or so adjacent to the Quidditch pitch for over half an hour. Traced her view from the stands to where she saw the mirage in front of Hogsmeade several times, and she's found nothing. The rippling she saw is nowhere to be found. Upon testing the wards with her own wand, she's discovered them to be intact. But she isn't mad, isn't hallucinating. She knows what she saw. And it bothers her so much she stays out there until well after dark. October 31st, 1998. She didn't want to come. Neither did Harry, as it turns out. And yet, thanks to Ginny, here they both are. In the glitz and glamour that is the Great Hall for Hogwarts' annual Hallow's Eve Ball. The room is darkly lit with floating jack-o'-lanterns, decorating the misty enchantment of the night sky. Torches line the wall, every now and again flickering with ghostly shapes. It smells of pumpkin and spiced cider, and McGonagall has no trouble at all booking the Weird Sisters as an entertainment. After all, what act would refuse to play for the saviour of the wizarding world? Their music is loud and energetic, and all-around bodies are dancing and jumping and colliding. Harry and Hermione stand like stone pillars amidst it all. It's one of his worst days, she can tell. His scar aches sometimes, or so he's told her. Not so unlike hers does. And she's caught him rubbing it a few times this evening. Overall, Harry's been doing a tremendous job of uplifting everyone. Particularly Ron. He's managed not to dwell on the past and to keep spirits high. And yet, it's a heavy task. One he can't shoulder every day which is why she doesn't ask why he didn't want to come tonight, why he isn't smiling. They afford one another the same courtesy. She, having never pretended to enjoy the post-war festivities, had obvious reasons for attempting to dodge this ball. But Ginny, tenacious Ginny, had only to lay out a costume on her dormitory bed and flash her pleading eyes. Now she's here, a glass of cider in one hand, leaning against Harry, counting the minutes until it ends. Ginny's dressed her up as a sort of harlequin, a short, corseted dress with diamond patterns and ridiculous little bells dangling from the pleats. She refused the jester's hat, so Ginny mussed up her hair rather wildly and then tied it up into a bun, with loose curls hanging alongside her face. Ginny did, however, insist on the makeup, conjuring dark colours around her eyes and framing them with shapes like spinning tops, Black lips as well. She feels absurd. But Ginny's form of coping is revelry, and she'll do nothing to ruin that for her. To match Ginny, Harry has been dressed as a prince, waistcoat and dashing jacket to match. Certainly not his first choice, but from the way he's looking at Ginny, gorgeous in her periwinkle princess gown, it's worth it. It isn't long before she comes to a sweep him away for a dance, 
and Hermione loses her partner in misery. By no means does she want these sorts of events to stop. A war shouldn't end human happiness. But it has for her, and being forced to partake feels disingenuous, fake. She sighs, retreating back to the alcove beside the sleeping ghost, sipping her cider as she watches the dance. Their will shall overshadow thee, be still, be still, the weird sisters croon from the stage, lyrics taken from a poem she recognises but can't quite place. She remembers a time when she loved Hallow's Eve. It had been her favourite season at Hogwarts. The decorations, the ghosts bold and unbashed, dancing through the halls at all hours. She'd practically loved the ball, had daydreamed about being asked to dance by Ron. She huffs a laugh at herself can hardly believe she was once so childish. And she sees him to the bottom of her glass as she finishes off the cider, blurry and disoriented. I think you drink more than I do these days, he says. Something inside her clenches. It's a difficult sensation to read. She isn't sure if it's unpleasant or not. But no matter what it is, it's partly nervousness. She hasn't spoken to him in weeks. Pulling the glass away, she jumps a little when she sees him. Malfoy has never been the sort to dress up, least of all now, or so she thought. But tonight he's fully ensconced in the garb of a corpse. Torn evening suit, black leather gloves, face painted in blacks and whites like a skeleton. She probably wouldn't have recognised him if he hadn't spoken first. Not unless she'd caught sight of his blonde hair slicked back almost like he used to wear in the earlier years. She isn't sure how to feel. The contrast of such dark black around his light eyes is captivating. The tooth-like stripes across his lips just draw more attention to them. The suit and the gloves. She's lying. She does know how to feel. She just doesn't want to own up to it. Gathering her wits, she lifts the glass and waves it at him. It's cider. I've given up drinking. She lets the glass fall away and it disappears in mid-air with a small puff of smoke. Have you? drawls Malfoy. Yes, she says. No, she hasn't. She took two or three shots of muggle whiskey prior to entering this room, and now she regrets it because she has no idea how to talk to him. She doesn't know where they stand. The last time they interacted, her legs were wrapped around his waist. The thought of it sends a shockwave up through her spine and she finds herself taking an unconscious half-step back. Always were the moral sort, he says, sipping his own glass of something that most definitely isn't being served by the school. Good for you, Dranger. His tone is laced with sarcasm, mocking. For some reason, it's almost a relief. Don't they always say that intimacy changes people? She's dealt with so much change as of late that it's sort of nice to have something to depend on, and Malfoy's sarcasm is as constant as the ocean. Intimacy has had no effect on it. Still, she's stunted for a response. Can't seem to form a casual sentence, and for a long while he just studies her with those icy eyes. She wonders if he'll bring it up, wonders if he'll gloat about it, about coaxing her into that repeat performance he'd mentioned as a joke. She couldn't really blame him if he did. Her actions of late have been less than admirable. Not to say that he's any better. As the silence between them grows too thick, she forces words out of her throat. 
But what are you, anyhow? A dead aristocrat? He nurses his drink, gazes at her with too much knowledge in his eyes and bobs a shoulder. A half shrug. Something like that. Paying homage to my Death Eater roots. She knows he says it to rile her up. She snatches another drink from a floating tray, gulping it down in favour of speaking. What about you, the clown? He scoffs. Honestly, I expected something a little more creative. I'm a harlequin, she hisses around the rim of her glass. And Ginny dressed me up. If I had any choice, I wouldn't be here. Inwardly, she wonders why she's being honest. Why give him the satisfaction? Ah, always let. I should have guessed. Don't you have somewhere else to be? People to mingle with? It's a low blow on her part, considering he's already admitted he doesn't have many friends. But Malfoy shakes it off, as cool and collected as he's ever been. No. Gone is the boy she had seen the day he left those bruises, capable of such overpowering rage. In his place is the sly, persuasive Malfoy, who always gets his way, familiar and yet unfamiliar to her all the same. Bothering you is more interesting anyway he says as he bristles, swallowing down the rest of the hot cider so fast it burns her throat. With a grimace, she pushes past him. Haven't we done enough to each other? And before he can say another word, she steps onto the dance floor, allowing herself to be swept up by the tide of swirling bodies. Firelight flashes behind her lids as she closes her eyes. She doesn't dance, but she sways with the rest of them and listens to the music. She tries to think back to a time where it would have been difficult to do this, to be loose like this, free like this. Now it takes effort. Heat crawls up around her. She feels the makeup start to bleed as she sweats, and suddenly the tune changes. It's one they all recognise. The Samhain Quadrille, the Regency-style dance they've been taught as first years in preparation for their first Hallows Eve Ball. The Weird Sisters have stepped aside to allow the orchestra to perform, Flitwick conducting. Bodies shuffle quickly as everyone on the dance floor adjusts themselves into two long parallel lines, facing each other. For a moment, Hermione stands in the middle, torn. She doesn't want to do this, doesn't even know if she can remember the steps. But Harry catches her eye with a small wave. Come on, Miney, he says, grabbing hands with Dean and Ron at his sides for old time's sake. The overture of the quadrille is almost over, a ghostly, minor-keyed arrangement. She glances behind her, where the girls are lined up, and Ginny and Luna are holding out their hands to her. She decides she'll do it, but for her own sake. Slipping in between them, she takes her hands with their moments to spare before the dance starts. The violins take over, and at once both lines raise their interlock hands above their heads and prance forward several steps. They swing them back down as the two lines converge, then back up to their original positions, and Hermione finds her muscle memory to be much stronger than she anticipated. When next the line of girls rushes forth, the boys raise their arms, and the girls separate and duck beneath them, turning and grabbing hold again, then repeating. She'd forgotten how much fun this was. People laugh as they make mistakes. As the lines disperse into circles of couples, Dean and Seamus cause a riot by accidentally pairing up with one another. They run with it, 
Seamus batting his eyelashes better than any girl she's known, as the couples bow to one another. Hermione is paired with Ron, and she notices his apprehension on his face. They haven't spoken much since the incident with Malfoy. But tonight, this dance is turning out better than she'd expected, better than she'd hoped. She doesn't want to spoil it, so she offers him a small smile, and in turn his face lights up. The couple's portion is slower. Each pair meets at the middle of the circle, touching palms, then revolving around one another, before making back into the circle. After each turn, they all grab hands and gallop together counterclockwise, a part that used to make her laugh. Seamus manages to force it out of her tonight, too, by rapidly increasing the speed, beyond its capacity, and turning their spinning circle into something of a ceiling fan catastrophe. After all the couples have met in the middle, the many circles come together again as a whole, and they repeat the portion with the lines. She finds herself laughing with Ginny and Luna as they break from the original choreography and perform a devolved, drunken mess of the cancan. The first years are tripping all over themselves, trying to remember the steps, and the older students are being no help, herself included. Couples get jumbled and rearranged as they divide into circles again, and this time Dean is gone and Ron is paired with Luna. Harry laughs the way he used to when he's thrown into the mix with Seamus, and it makes Hermione's heart swell. Ginny and Neville skip the touching of palms and grab hands to spin in a raucous pinwheel. And Hermione's laughing freely as she rushes forth for her turn, only to realise that if Ron's paired with Luna, then... A mask of black and white fills her view as Malfoy steps up to meet her. Her laughter is sucked up and out of her throat as though by a vacuum. She glances nervously to the side, finding confused faces, but none of disgust. They don't recognise him. Malfoy is taking her hand before she has time to prepare herself, and he sweeps her into a spin, twirling her once, twice. She roots her heel into the ground, stopping to hiss at him in a whisper. What are you doing? Before they step back from one another and rejoin the circle. His face is impassive as ever, skeletal lips quirked off to one side, the only evidence he's enjoying this. She glares at him over Luna's shoulder as she and Ron hook elbows and skip around. He's taking this too far, he's toying with her, and he's going to get them caught. The circles split back into lines for the final portion of the dance, and she thinks she does a careful job of positioning herself to be paired up with either Harry or Ron. Right, Hermione, Looney asks dreamily, having noticed her smile missing. She turns to answer, only to have the dance charge forth before she's ready. The lines meet in the middle, and it's absolutely impossible that she's miscalculated this badly. Impossible! Which means Malfoy slid himself between Ron and Harry the last minute, making him her partner. She opens her mouth to say God knows what, but he shocks her into silence by lacing his fingers through the cinch front of her corset and yanking her up against him with a gasp, her hands fly to his chest, instinctively trying to push away. Are you mad? What are you doing? Malfoy's other hand sweeps down to her lower back, pulling her closer yet, and she goes abruptly still. To answer your question from before, 
he says, voice low as he begins to twirl her about the dancer's final waltz. No. No what? She breathes, limp in his grasp, forgetting all the steps. Her eyes flip to the other couples as he leads, trying to see whether they're being watched. But Malfoy stops them short just then, dragging her close once more so she's flush against him. It forces her breath to build at the top of her chest, and she stares up at him, lips parted, cheeks flaming, heart pounding. No, I don't think we've done nearly enough to each other. And then his hands fan out against her waist, yanking her hips in, and he sweeps down to capture her mouth. A helpless squeak of protest is the last thing she can manage. And of all things, she makes a mental note to ask whether he's placed an enchantment on his lips. Because it's like a drug. Her protests die in her mouth. Her fighting hands go limp against him, only to come back to life to slide up to his shoulders. Her eyes fall shut and all she knows is his taste, mint and the bitter tang of the white makeup on his lips, the black on hers. One of his hands dives low, sweeps across the expanse of her thigh, hooks it up around his hip. She gasps and he takes the opportunity to reunite their tongues, familiar old friends. She's lost in oblivion for the remainder of the dance, only coming to her senses when the music dies away, as did the sound of swishing skirts and pounding shoes. It's over. Breaking away from his lips is like pulling away from a magnet. Gravity is against her. But when she manages, flushed and panting, her thighs still gripped tight in his gloved hand, it only takes one glance to know they're the centre of attention. Quickly, she detangles herself from him, going redder still from the stairs. She remembers she should be furious, but as her face moulds into a glare and her mouth opens, Malvoy cuts her off. Don't expect me to apologise. And he surges forth once more to brush his nose up against her neck, to clamp his teeth down on the still tender expanse in front of everyone, ripping a hoarse little shriek from her mouth. He's backing away. I'm not sorry, he says, voice even, dark. And he disappears into the darkness of the great hall, lost amongst the crowd, leaving her alone at the centre of dozens of wide eyes. Chapter 14 October 31st, 1998 She wipes her mouth smears what is likely already smudges of black all over her lips and chin. The gazes of her peers are heavy, almost painfully so, and she feels all she can do is clear her throat, straighten her corset and stride quickly from the hall. The cool air outside the gold doors sends a chill through her blood, and she shivers as she makes her way through the grand staircase. Her cheeks are flaming, her heart thudding like a mallet in her chest. Footsteps echo behind her. Someone is hot on her heels. Ginny, please! She whips around, breathless, only to see Theodore not charging up the stairs after her. What the fuck are you playing at, Granger? He's not who she expected, and she's unprepared. Not? She says stupidly, almost in a daze. He stops on the step below her costumeless, smelling of alcohol, 
His face is pink with it and also with anger. Answer me, he snaps. So he isn't drunk enough to slur. She gathers a breath, speaks primly with more focus. I don't understand the question. And she's grateful her voice comes out steady. Turning, she resumes her march at the staircase, trying to calm the tremble in her fingertips, which is entirely Malfoy's doing. But not follows her up, matching her stride and taking each step simultaneously. Don't play dumb, Granger. You've never been an idiot. Neither have you, so I'd assume you can tell me what someone's telling the truth. She quips, refusing to look at him. What he has to do with anything, she doesn't know. Clearly, he knew Malfoy's costume tonight, but she wouldn't have pinned him to be among the top ten most upset by their actions. He'd have to wait in line. Whatever bollocks you're trying to pull with Malfoy had best stop now. Who are you, his father? What does it matter to you? She lurches up two steps to get ahead of him, but he catches up quickly. She realises she should be worried that he knows, even if he seems to be the only one. That's one more mouth to keep shut. A silent fury builds in her stomach at Malfoy. The next time she sees him, she swears she'll, Like I've said before, Granger, I'm his crutch, and I won't have you fucking with his head any more than you already have. Whatever you're doing, trying to make him trust you and whatnot, put a fucking end to it. Now! She stops short, so quickly not almost trips. Making him trust me? She pins him with what she hopes is a vicious glare. Yeah, Granger, that's what I think you're fucking doing. Either that or this is some pathetic rehabilitate the Death Eaters project of yours. Whichever way, I know you'll come out looking like a hero and he'll end up in the Azkaban or worse. Not speech surprises her. It takes her a moment to form any response at all, and when she does, it comes amidst stuttering scoffs and huffs. I... you... what on earth are you on about? Azkaban? Bloody kiss would hardly put a mind in Azkaban! Not's thick brows converge over his eyes. His gaze darkens. That wasn't just a kiss, Granger. We've established neither of us are idiots. She sniffs, tries to plaster an impassive expression onto her face. Even as his words make her think more than she wants to. You're drunk, she says. Sleep it off. And if you're this upset, why don't you speak to your bloody crutch about this? He's the one causing all the trouble. She storms off ahead and he doesn't follow, but he calls after her. Oh, I have, Granger. It makes her pause mid-step. And you've got him wrapped around your little finger. Not's words echo in her head as she struggles to wash the nightmarish remains of the makeup off her face. She's scrubbing at it the muggle way. It doesn't feel like using magic. It wants to keep her hands busy and her mind occupied. But it isn't working. You've got him wrapped around your little finger. Surely he can't be serious. The only person she can possibly picture having Malfoy in such a position is his father. The implication that she should have such an effect on him is, well, it's ludicrous. Malfoy's left streaks of white on her upper lip. She scrubs at them the hardest until her face feels raw and itchy. The dormitory has been empty for too long as it is, 
and when the last she hears the door open, she's expecting it, even as a thick dread settles in her veins. Miney, she hears. It's Ginny. In here, she says, turning the sick faucet off, resigned. Ginny appears in the doorway, and the accusatory expression Hermione's expecting isn't there. In its place is concern, more than she's accustomed to. Are you all right? she asks, toying with her lovely red braid. Hermione nods mutely. She's almost numb. This conversation is long overdue, and while she fears she's spent weeks rehearsing it, she still isn't prepared. Clearly not, because the first words out of her mouth are, If you'll hate me. And then she's bursting into tears, loud, pathetic sobs, and as they stream down her cheeks, her stomach sinks in horror. It seems she's far from numb, and this isn't how she wanted it to go at all. But Ginny's an inch from her. In a heartbeat, gathering her up and pressing her wet face into the shoulder of her gown. Bloody hell, Miney she says. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And with a sad laugh, she's leading her out of the bathroom towards her four-poster. She sets Hermione up against her pillows, then sits cross-legged in front of her at the foot of the bed, drawing the curtains around them. She casts a quick mufflato, sets her wand aside and then fixes a pair of enormously large brown eyes onto Hermione's and waits. Hermione says nothing. All right says Ginny after about a full minute. Well, who is he? Hermione makes a sound of desperation and drops her face into her hands. Still stinging and raw, now swollen from crying. That's the worst question. It can't be that bad. But Hermione's fervent nod cuts her off. Hermione, Ginny says soberly. No one could be anything but happy that you found someone. I know one can be. Now she's shaking her head and adamantly at that. You're wrong. You're so, so wrong. Well, Ron will just have to muck up and deal with it. It's not just Ron. It'll be all of you. Trust me, please. Trust me. And she sounds more neurotic than she's ever sounded in her life. She may as well be rocking back and forth. All right. Ginny holds up her hands in surrender. She picks up her wand and conjures a quick and rather impressive cup of tea, holding it out to Hermione. Then we'll start with easier questions. Hermione sips it while it's too hot. How did it start and when? She speaks around the cup at her lips, her breath disturbing the stream rising from it. A little after the start of term. Vaguely, she thinks how much this feels like two girls talking at a slumber party beneath blankets. If only it were that simple. And it started by accident, really, she continues, staring into her tea. She's afraid if she looks at Ginny, she'll lose her nerve. How does something start by accident? Her tone comes out defensive. She can't help it. Neither of us wanted this to happen. We don't... We aren't... Right for each other. Ginny says nothing, waiting for her to finish. We just... Hermione sighs, setting aside the tea on the nightstand. We ended up having a lot in common, and one night we'd had too much to drink. The night you got the bruises, Ginny says. Confirms, really. She nods. I'm sorry I lied to you. I didn't know how to explain. 
But who is he, Hermione? Are you honestly that afraid to tell me? Yes, she admits. Why? Her stomach feels like it's sinking. Like this weight in it. Practically a bowling ball. She thinks it might be the sensation one feels right before they lose a friend. But she's made the decision, and now is a better time than any. She forces the words to rise up in her throat. Because it's... The door to the dormitory bursts open and laughter spills in. Shadows move from behind the bed curtains. Hermione Jean Granger! Someone sing-songs drunkenly. Maybe Parvati. Where are you, you wild minx? Ginny pinches the bridge of her nose and lets out a groan. She bats aside one of the curtains and her muffliato fades away. Pav, bloody hell! Parvati is an arm in arm with Eloise and Romilda, wobbling on her feet, face split with a massive grin. You! she announces too loudly when she sees Hermione, giggling and nearly falling over. Eloise tugs her backwards. Why didn't you tell us about you and Zacharias? Hermione blinks. Blinks again. Opens her mouth and shuts it as Ginny sneaks a glance at her. Zacharias? Ginny echoes. I feel betrayed, Parvati wails, and Eloise and Romilda hush her and mix more giggles, working her over towards her bed. Where is the bond of sisterhood? Oh, shut it, you great cow. Ginny thrusts a pillow in her direction and misses narrowly. But when her eyes find Hermione again, they're full of curiosity and a bit of something else. That's who it is, Zachariah Smith. Hermione stares at her in silence for a long moment. It's relief, she realises. That's the look on her face. She's relieved by the name. Smith is one of the only other blonde boys in their year, and to Ginny, Parvati and the others, he's the only logical answer. The only acceptable blonde that Hermione would dare to fraternise with. And it fills Hermione up with so much panic and guilt that no matter how much force she musters inside herself to hold it back, she says it anyway. Yes. Yes, it's Zachariah Smith. Chapter 15 November 1st, 1998 Diary Oh, you'd better be fucking kidding me. This'd better be a very bad joke. There is no other way to explain what I've just heard. Pansy's watching me write. She's ruined my breakfast with her juicy morning gossip and now she's staring at me like she's expecting me to transform into an imp or something. But... Fucking Zacharias. I've always known Granger as a bloody milksop when it comes to her fellow Gryffindors. But Zacharias! The fucking least she could have fucking done was say I was fucking McLaggen. Or someone at least minimally less revolting than that fucking candy-ass Hufflepuff's toft pump. I want to rip her fucking hair out. I want to do more than that. Before you report me for coming unhinged, do me a favour and consider what you'd fucking do if your fucking girl was pretending you were a bloody Hufflepuff to save face. Why doesn't this fucking book let me cross things out anymore? She's not my girl. That was a grammatical mistake. But you know what I fucking mean. I feel like my blood's fucking boiling. I'm thinking of doing something stupid. Draco. November 1st, 1998. She realises she's never paid much attention to him before. But now she catches herself glancing sideways at him every other minute. 
as though something's in his face will give away that he's not heard yet. She understands why Parvati thinks it's him. He's almost tall enough, and blonde, but a darker blonde. But his features are infinitely less angular than Malfoy's. He's almost baby-faced, and he's stockier, less aristocratic. Zachariah Smith is not her type. It's an unfortunate train of thought, has her falling down a rabbit hole of possibilities. The possibility that Malfoy's her type, the possibility that people are starting to pale in comparison to him, which is... which is just absurd. She's a bloody idiot, she knows, and for every second that's passed since the words came out of her mouth, she's regretted them. Somehow she's managed to dig herself into an even deeper crater of lies. Ginny and the other girls had only been too happy for her. They joked, teased her. What are you so afraid of? He's cute, how's the snogging? It certainly hadn't helped that Parvati was drunk. Hermione had asked, of course, to keep this quiet. She thought Parvati's inebriation might work in her favour, hoped she'd forget to come morning, and somehow the disastrous evidence of her cowardice wouldn't be all over the school. She thought wrong, clearly. Almost everyone knows. Just hopefully not Zachariah Smith. And hopefully not... She makes the mistake of letting her eyes wander in the other direction, past the Hufflepuff table, and towards the familiar corner belonging to Slytherin. Malfoy is deeply involved in his journal, scribbling with a certain fury. She bites down on the inside of her lip. That doesn't necessarily mean that he knows... Any number of things could have him so angry. But she watches him for a good minute, and before long his livid gaze slides in the direction hers has been all morning. He shoots the blissfully unaware Zacharias a glare that could freeze hell. He knows. Pollocks, Hermione mumbles to herself. But when she glances back at her table mates, they're staring at her. What? asks Ginny. No... Nothing. Forget an assignment, that's all. They probably don't buy that. Her treacherous eyes continue their tour of stomach-dropping sights, falling on Ron next. He's upset, visibly. His normal carefree manner is absent, and worst of all, he's not eating. That's never a good sign. According to Ginny, Ron never really moved on. And if this is how he stomachs Zachariah Smith, she can only imagine how he'd react to the truth. The idea of it makes her nauseous. For the first time in days, her scar itches. She tries to gravitate the topic to the conversation away from all of it several times, bringing up the kink in the ward she'd seen by the Quidditch pitch, something that still bothers her, but nothing really takes more than a minute or so. Everyone is too enamoured with the idea of Hermione Granger, lonely, damaged fraction of the Golden Trio, finally moving on from the war which isn't the truth of it by a mile. Malfoy is nothing but a powerful distraction. The war is still with her every day. November 2nd, 1998. She'd known it was only a matter of time, and it happens on the way to Defence Against the Dark Arts. Hey! Someone calls her, feet scuffling behind her. Hermione! She turns, sighs when she sees Zacharias. He catches up to her with a short sprint. Book bag bobbing from shoulder to shoulder. Hi, he says out of breath, 
boyish face a bit pink. Hi, she echoes. Her stomach ties itself in knots. She has no idea where this conversation will go, but she expects he's probably angry, and rightfully so. I, um... His hand makes its way up around the back of his head, rubbing his hair into a mess of fluff as he struggles for phrasing. He's leaning on one side, and then the other, awkward and unsure. I'm sorry, she blurts out. I... No, no, don't be sorry. It's okay. Um, I mean, I... I feel as though some things were lost in translation. But yeah, um, it's just... I mean, the whole idea is really sweet, and honestly, I'm flattered. Honestly. I just... I, um... Zacharias, I'm gay, he rushes. Hermione swallows whatever sentence she'd poise on the tip of her tongue. Zacharias's face blanches, and he glances around nervously at the now-empty corridor. She opens her mouth, shuts it, much like a fish. Of all the ways she'd expected this conversation to go, this direction wasn't on her map. She's torn between relief and confusion. Relief because he seems to be taking it all right graciously, and confusion because... Why is he telling her this? All right, is the first thing she can manage. I just... I thought it would be unfair not to tell you, considering the feelings you have for me. Zacharias, like I said, I'm flattered, and honestly, maybe if I wasn't... Zacharias? But I am, and I'm sort of confused by the whole rumour, and I just... Zacharias! She snaps. And finally his brown eyes focus on her and his mouth snaps shut. What she plans to say is very cut and dry. Concise. A sort of, it's all a big mistake, no hard feelings, let's part ways friends ordeal. But what she plans to say never makes it past the back of her tongue. Instead, this finds its way out, like a rogue bludger. It isn't you in the stories, it's Malfoy. She feels her heart clench down on the blood inside of it. A ripple of panic shoots through her as she realises what she's saying, but she finds she can't stop now that she's started. Friends of mine saw us at the ball, and they jumped to their own conclusions. I only said it was you to protect myself. Zacharias looks as though he's been petrified. She isn't feeling much better. It feels foolish, most of all, considering he's someone she doesn't even know she can trust. Of all the people to tell. She's mentally hexing herself for the entirety of silence. Then Zacharias comes back to life. Um, he says. He's off to a good start. Right, yeah, okay. Then he seems to do a mental double-take. His brows knit together. Wait, no. You and... Malfoy, yes. She exhales, lets out her first deep breath in almost half a minute. She suddenly feels lighter, but perhaps that's only because he hasn't run off cackling yet, prepared to divulge her secret to the entire student body. No, he's only scrubbing at the space above his nose as though he's gotten a migraine. Could be worse. Malfoy, he says again, and his tone is somewhere on the fence between horrified and incredulous. Really? She purses her lips, heaves out another large breath. Her gaze drops to her feet. 
fascinating. Her eyes snap back up and suddenly Zacharias looks rather excited, though she can't fathom why. What? Sorry, sorry, he squints, laughing to himself as he seems to try to reorganise his thoughts. I just... wow. Amazing. I never could have pictured... Yes, I know. What an odd pairing. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, after everything. Zacharias, I've already gone through all of this in my own head. Please. Again, his eyes refocus, and after less than five minutes talking to him, she has an excellent grip on his personality. Scattered, bashful, unfocused and sporadic. Harmless. A bit like Luna, actually. Right, yeah, sorry. At the back of her mind, she wonders how many hearts it would break in Gryffindor if it got out that she was gay. At least three off the top of her head. But Zacharias is very different than she'd assume from a distance. He's apologising for his tangent, cheeks going pink again, and she's thinking that maybe, just maybe, he might be kind enough to keep this sim to himself. Only time will tell, really. She feels the need to make a quick escape, and doesn't want to wait around for something to go wrong. I've... um, I've got to go, she says, turning, hiking her book bag more tightly over her shoulder. But he calls after her. Of course he does. Nothing can ever be simple. Wait, Hermione! She glances back and holds her breath, and he says, Maybe we can help each other. Mm-hmm.